Peacebuilding Podcast. My name is Susan Coleman. I'm a global coach, mediator, and the host of this podcast. Join me as I interview today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, the best ideas of a new world emerging. So in the, in the current political climate in the United States, uh, there's a heightened interest in bringing those who disagree with each other together for respectful conversations. I was just on a webinar with uh, a super interesting guy called Terry Real, who's a family therapist in the United States. And uh, on that webinar, they were talking about better angels, citizen therapists for democracy. But really, one of, one of the first groups, maybe the first group, I'm not really sure, to do this kind of work um, was the Public Conversations Project out of the Boston area in the United States whose dialogue processes among leaders of both sides of the abortion issue made them very well known to all of us who were working in the field. My colleague, Zach Metz, who was on episode number eight, uh, season one of the Peacebuilding podcast, um, who's, uh, he teaches peacebuilding at SIPA as well as other, at Columbia University as well as other things, he describes the public conversations model as um, the best out there to help people involved with intractable issues grapple with what matters most. The uh, Public Conversations Project, which is now called Essential Partners, was founded by a group of family therapists who made their mark around the abortion issue. And as Bob talks about, Bob is my guest, and I will say hello to him in a second, um, in the late 80s and early 90s, the conflict over abortion had gotten uh, to such a fever pitch, you know, allegations of baby killers, woman haters, um, and resulting in um, really coming to blows to physical violence. So following the murders of two women outside a local abortion clinic, Laura Chasen, who uh, was essentially the founder of PCP, Bob will correct me if I'm wrong, um, became a co-facilitator of a multi-year clandestine dialogue between Boston-area pro-choice and pro-life leaders, which are the words that are used to describe these two sides of that conflict in the United States. In um, the years that followed, Laura and the founders applied this method, um, which combines elements of family therapy, neuroscience, and mediation to a wide variety of issues and communities, including same-sex marriage, immigration, gun rights, uh, gender issues, peace-building efforts around the world, and many other topics that are very contentious. So I have with me Bob Staines, who basically helped build the Public Conversations Project over the last 22 years and is a pioneer of the modern dialogue movement. He's a seasoned facilitator of challenging conversations about identity, religion, and values, and has trained over 20,000 professionals in communication and dialogue facilitation skills in the U.S. and around the world. He's the principal of Bob Staines and Associates, Conflict Transformation, and a senior associate of Essential Partners, which was formerly known as the Public Conversations Project. 
Uh, he teaches PCPs and the Essential Partners approach, which is called Reflective Structured Dialogue in both domestic and international settings and organizations. He also, I'm going to put his bio, as always, up on uh, along with the show notes, but a few other things. He's consulted the Harvard Negotiation Project at Harvard Law School, where so many of us who work in this field found, um, found our beginnings. And uh, the Family Dinner Project, which I have to ask him about that, exactly what that is, um, and has a truly impressive bio. So I'll let you take a look at that. But I want to bring Bob on the show and say hello. Uh, thanks for joining us, Bob. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. So uh, anything that, I mean, again, I'm going to put the bio on up there, but is there anything that you want to say at the outset uh, to add to that introduction that you want the listeners to know about you? Yeah. Um, I think one of the, the signature um, components of the reflective structured dialogue approach is the, the focus on personal experience of people who are participating. So it might be good for me to start with a personal experience that illustrates um, how I got into this, really. I was working around the country in homeless shelters 20-odd years ago, teaching people how to best care for homeless women and their children. And I was often, um, always the only male in that context and often the only Caucasian. So I was always engaging difference um, wherever I was, but more doing it from the seat of my pants until I encountered the public conversations projects, um, first workshop and the first dialogic event that I ever attended, which as you were describing the events, um, that followed the shooting in Boston, uh, that led to the creation of the leaders dialogue. Um, prior to that, there was a what was the, what was the leaders dialogue was what was that? the the what you mentioned about pro choice and pro life uh, 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 people coming together for was known as the leaders dialogue six years okay yeah. got it um, but prior to that Laura did an event in a church in Cambridge with a full uh, full congregation and we went into this church I was just a an attendee at that time. Um, and she spoke about, I remember her using the analogy of, a, of an airplane, come join me on a flight to a different land where it's possible to talk about the deepest differences and come to understand each other. And she asked us to simply turn to the person next to us and talk about a personal experience that we'd had that would help them understand what our perspective on abortion was. And I had very strong perspectives, but had never until that moment had a conversation that did not result in an argument uh, with somebody that I disagreed with. And in the space of five minutes after the two of us exchanged experiences and talked about what was at the heart of our perspective, we both were feeling exultation because we'd had this exchange that was not fractious that was understanding that actually left us feeling connected with each other, even though we deeply disagreed. And I thought this is like magic dust. This is something really special that I need to learn more about. By, de uh, by definition, were you talking to somebody who did disagree or was that? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really what made it so unusual. Mm -hmm. um, so that really was the, the, 
the door that opened for me into this new world uh, of dialogue where it's possible to engage people with the deepest of differences and, and walk out feeling more connected than you did when you came in to the meeting. Amazing. Amazing. Well, um, I, I like to go back. Um, thanks for sharing that story and would like to hear more about stories like that. And, but before Uh we go there, um, I wanted to ask you a question, which, you know, maybe inspired by Krista Tippett, you know, that I know, you know, Krista and, and I, I've been so inspired by her show on being, but how she always asks, her listeners about, um, I think the question is something about a spiritual event and, you know, or who they are spiritually speaking. I like to always ask people about what planted the seeds in them, the seed, you know, the seeds to do the work that you do. If you could identify something in your childhood, uh, that got you to a place where you were even interested in bringing together people that were really in polarized places and, uh, so anything that you can think of that was formative to you that made you the kind of person to want to do that kind of work? Um, maybe I'll just touch on three quick things. First is being raised by a single father uh, in the 50s and the 60s. That's unusual. <laughs> um, which are, mm-hmm. was very unusual, and it marked me in a certain way um, as different from my peers, uh, and my teachers treated me differently. And, um, there were parents who would not allow children to come to my home because it was run by a man. Um, and it also really shaped my ideas about what it means to be a a man in the world, which were really at variance with what, you know, sort of the prevailing idea. Uh, you know, my dad did everything. He ironed, he did the dishes, he cooked the meals. Um, so he didn't conform to the stereotypes. So, I think that between the experience of people on the outside and the experience of my family, it left me feeling a little bit different. Um, and sometimes on the outside uh, of a lot of activities, social and school. Um, so I had that kind of feeling of myself of being uh, on the outside and wanting to be included. Um, and uh, later on, I was, um, I I almost hesitate to say this, but I was very religious teenager and I started a commune back in the era of the Jesus movement. (laughs) So, um, but it was an unusual group because we were very left wing politically. We were out marching in the streets against the war and against racism, but very conservative theologically. And the role that we played in our community was, for the police and the clergy and um, helping professionals to bring people to us that needed help. So lost kids, runaways, people that were strung out on drugs um, of all sort of races and social classes wound up in our living room. Mm. And we had to figure out as young people, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, how best to help these people that came to our doorstep. So, we got very familiar with working with multiple agencies, multiple levels of power, um, working with people in our house who came from different strata of society and different races. And that really was the, I think, the platform or the foundation for me of wanting to do the work that I do today. Mm-hmm. And it launched me into being a therapist, um, which again is really helping people um, with deep differences come together 
uh, and to talk about those differences. And then, um, but not so much in that instance, not in a, uh, intimate setting, but in a really, uh, a setting where there were a lot of different kinds of stakeholders and people and right. a lot of diversity. So, right. cool. And I think that I learned early on that, um, some conflicts are not going to be resolved, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that people can't change the way they relate to each other. And how did you and learn? How did you learn that, or how did you come to that conclusion? Well, when you have people coming from such different um, personal experiences, there are ways in which those folks are going to be limited in how far they can go in understanding each other. Mm -hmm. um, because of the various backgrounds that they come from, mm -hmm. right? So they're going to come away with very different ideas. About, well, at least in a particular period of time, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah, sure, yeah. and in a particular setting. In a particular um, so setting. Yeah. Just speaking in terms of like the, the specific experience I had in that context, um, we had people coming in with such different backgrounds that there were things that they could agree on and there are things that they couldn't agree mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. um, and that isn't that the way it is, right? Mm -hmm. It's the way it is in our, in our marriages and mm -hmm, our families, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, As my mentor, is, my mentor, John Carter from the Gestalt Institute, he would always say, it's just, it, some of these are just dilemmas to be managed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And so, so I started to develop this idea, I think, um, that focusing on the relationship that people have with each other and how they engage the conflict that they have uh, is as or more important than the actual conflict or the resolution of that conflict, especially in places where, mm -hmm. like abortion, mm -hmm. they're not going to agree, right? People are just not going to come to an agreement about that. I just want to highlight that. I think it's such an exciting idea, and it's such a theme going through a lot of these interviews that people create containers of some sort yeah. or another mm -hmm. to be able to manage whatever their the situation that they're managing. It sounds like that's what you were beginning to focus on. What's the container? I'm going to use that word that can create a constructive dialogue that will work with people. Yeah, and I, I think um, I've been influenced a lot by the work of Barnett Pierce and the social constructionists and the coordinated management of meaning. And one of the things that Barnett has spoken of is the phrase making social worlds hmm. that we, we sort of construct the relational environment um, that's around us by the container or the, you know, the particular things we lay in place for conversations. And, and then out of those um, is created the sort of social world. And I think we're seeing that now in the sort of experiences that we've had through this election that, um, the worlds that we've created around us have been so homogeneous um, that we haven't had the opportunity to sort of really go into deeply understanding because we haven't had the kind of context or the, to use the word you use container um, to support those kind of conversations. Right. So, Bob, OK, so in terms of the seeds, what I'm calling the seeds, yeah. you identified your really interesting. I mean, it seems like it's such an unusual thing for somebody to say that they were raised by a single dad. You know, you just don't ever hear it. But so I'm sure it exists. But that was yeah. interesting. And um, and the ways that you were ostracized because of that, and then what you learned about male-female relationships because of that. And then your uh, some early professional experiences. Um, and then you said three things. Is there something else that, that, or, or you pretty much, 
is there something else you want to add to the what planted the seeds question? Uh, yeah, I did leave something out, didn't I? <laughs> I think so. I, yeah, I think so. I was, yeah. I, yeah. So, um, yeah, my first, um, one of my first jobs after I became a therapist was to work, um, on the streets and in the community helping with the process of deinstitutionalization, uh, of folks to get out of long-term uh, care in mental hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so part of my job when a new group home was being set up was to bring the neighbors together uh, of that, that building, bring the neighbors together with the clients that were going to be moving in, uh, and create opportunities for them to get to know each other. Wow. Because, you know, part of the problem I think that, that we have is that we create stories about each other mm. in the absence of the other, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. we have these, mm-hmm. people have these stories about, mm-hmm. um, about them, you know, either whether it's those people in the community that are going to hate me or those crazy mentally ill people that are going to come and, you know, um, do violence in our and world. And can, can I say that we also create stories about people even when they are there with us? I mean, sometimes I think where there's just life is so much projecting, projecting, projecting. And True. it's always wonder how much we actually see each other, you know, right. in the face of all those stories that we make up. But you're right. Like when we don't actually have them in the room, we really can make up stuff big time. Yeah. yeah. So, so part of my job back then was to, you know, create the opportunity for people to see each other. And what we would now call what the narr- narrative therapists would call um, reauthoring the uh-huh. stories that are told about uh-huh. you. Huh. And I think that's also a large component of the dialogue work is giving people an opportunity um, to really reauthor the stories that other people carry about them. So and actually, then they wind up leaving also reauthoring their own story. Okay. Because now they know, like in my experience of the conversation about abortion, I walked out of that experience with a different idea about myself. I have the capacity to connect across this difference. Um, so I added to my own story in addition to changing the story that I had about that, those people on the other side that had a different view of mine. Okay. So, um, I wanted you to describe the, uh, the, the, um, the, res- the reflective structured dialogue sure. approach, but I also wanted you to, before you do that, just say a little bit about, again, the history, what happened as a result of the leader, uh, you call them the leader dialogues. Is that what they were called? Yeah. yeah. So let me just sort of speak to, there's a several phases of work on abortion, mm-hmm. not all of which are known, but they are all very intimately connected. Um, when, PCP started as a brainstorming group. The the question was, do family therapy ideas and practices have something to offer public conversation about difficult issues? Mm -hmm. And it was decided that abortion would be a good test case because that was the most contentious issue in the country at the Mm -hmm. time, late 80s. If a a method could be developed to engage that issue among partisans, it would probably apply to other issues as well. So – a series of 18 months of dialogues was initiated where people were brought in, try out a particular approach, interview everybody afterwards, get their input, change the approach over and over and over wow, and over so and cool. over again, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Until a particular model was created. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that work went on until, um, until I guess, 92 or 93. And then we went off into other subjects, the environment most prominently. And then these shootings happened. And um, so Laura... Uh, which, just, which shootings? The uh, ones the, that I referred the, to? The Brookline. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Laura did get together with mediator Susan Podziba and invited these 
um, people who were leading organizations to come together for they committed to four meetings okay um, and, and and it was tough for them to even commit to four meetings because mm-hmm. they had never had conversations before yeah. mm-hmm. and those four meetings turned into five years of wow. secret wow uh, secret conversations in in our basement actually and and uh, secret because they felt that they would be uh, it's always the issue of people that are negotiating on the boundary how much grief they get from their constituencies for even talking to the other side? Was that the idea uh, for that, why secret? Um, that was part of it. Um, and part of it had to do with exactly what you were talking about before the metaphor of the container. Uh. Um, and actually somebody asked me, I was consulting on a project a couple of weeks ago. They were going to start a dialogue and bring TV cameras with them um, before people had even met each other. And I said to them, um, that will you'll have a conversation, but it will be a different conversation than if the cameras were absent. Mm -hmm. So it was about having a private conversation uh, where people could react and interact differently than they could if it was sort of public, either to constituents or to opponents, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And out of those five years, uh, those women decided that they needed to tell their story. So they spent the next year, a whole year, working with uh, the editor at the Boston Globe to write a three-page op-ed for the Boston Sunday Globe. Um, And then had a press conference when that was released in 2001. Mm -hmm. And the enduring impact of that certainly is that it continues to inspire people around the world. Um, And those women continue to speak in pairs, pro-life and pro-choice pairs, Mm -hmm. um, at different events to tell people about the value of um, talking across the divide. And the interesting, one of the interesting things that came out of that was that to a person, the women said, not only did they not change their views, but, but their perspective was enhanced by. <laughs> Does that uh, mean deep, deepened? Yeah, deepened, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and, and that they talked about what held them together, what kept them together was love. Yeah. And that they grew to love each other, yeah. uh, though they deeply, deeply disagreed with one another. Hey, Bob, is um, that article in the Boston Globe? Is that something I could add to the show notes? Is that uh, for the? It should be on the on the what is essential website. Okay. Um, okay. And if if not, I'll find it and send okay. it to you. Yeah. yeah. I know. I saw a quote uh, when I was uh, preparing for this interview of the of the uh, a joint quote from those five uh, six women, whatever it is, six, yeah. six women. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you mentioned you um, mentioned the sort of pro-choice, pro-life uh, tags earlier, and I wanted to just say a bit about that um, because one of the things, one of the first things that that these women did, and we often do in our dialogue work, is have a conversation about language mm. um, because language, you know, is used in so many ways to reinforce polarization, uh, and we are strongly committed to having people be called what they want to be called. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they agreed to that, that they would call each other what the other wanted to call them, even though they had a different idea about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a really, was a really, really important point. Uh, and I think a, a marker of their collaborative spirit, um, and what they were willing to give up in order to have the conversations that they did. Mm-hmm. So now, uh, 
I like people to actually get sort of nitty gritty with the yeah. process and just, okay. I mean, not obviously not in great detail because we don't have, you know, we try to keep this to, a, to 45 sure. minutes to an hour, but just give the listeners a flavor of what is this process? I, there are probably many processes, but what's the core process? Because I think pe- you have a core process. Could you give us a flavor of what that is? Sure. Uh, so the I'll say a bit about the principles underneath, underlying, and I've already talked about the importance of story and personal experience, bringing that into the room. Um, but maybe because we're family therapists, or most of us um, are either are or were family therapists, we've spent a lot of time with families in distress. So we've seen how repetitive patterns of communication get started and deepened and then sustain themselves over time, even though the original conflict may have been forgotten, the pattern keeps going. So one of the things we're strongly committed to uh, is trying to understand that pattern and then prevent it from showing up in the room when people come together. Mm -hmm. We don't want to have them reenact old patterns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So we think about what do we want to prevent first and then what do we want to promote Mm -hmm. instead Mm -hmm. Uh, and work with people very collaboratively to be able to articulate that. Um, I, I talk in terms of the six, the six P's. <laughs> so what is the purpose of people coming together, which is really important as a start to be really clear that all parties are really clear on what the purpose is. And that's a shared understanding of purpose. And then what people need to be there in order to achieve that purpose. So what are the voices that are outliers or that if they're not included, this is not going to be a successful conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, people engage essential partners um, or those of us that are practicing reflective structure dialogue under the umbrella of deepening understanding of the other and um, being able to communicate in constructive ways about differences. So not to uh, solve specific problems, generally speaking, um, you know, not to come to an agreement in the mediation kind of a sense, but in cases where people are divided by issues like identity that are not going to change, um, to be able to deepen the understanding that they have uh, of another and to speak to be understood um, and listen to understand rather than to win. So those are our, the, the purposes kind of that we bring, and they're going to be refined in a specific context with a specific group of people um, and sorry, that, Bob, but why do they care? I mean, our our yeah. world is so, you know, like, I mean, I even find with mediation sometimes it's like, oh, my God, if we don't have an agreement, what the hell? Let's not bother. So sure. why, why do they care? Um, so when when people are together in groups, whether it's a family or an organization, a municipality or a nation, uh, they need to have some sense of community in order to to do the kinds of things that they want to do, right? Um, whether that's collaborating on stuff that is not controversial or working on stuff that is, they can't do it unless they're in community. Mm-hmm. And you cannot have community without relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you need to be in relationship in order for you to have that sense of community. And you can't have relationship without conversation. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're not focusing on the quality of the conversation, um, and the quality of relationship, you're shortchanging the community's ability to do stuff. 
um, and to make those decisions, to build that playground, whatever. I mean, there are communities where people have just stopped working together mm -hmm. because they can't talk to each other. So if you can enable people to do that, to speak and listen and hear and understand, that frees them up to uh, collaborate on areas of shared interest. Mm -hmm. And they may still disagree on many things, right. um, but it, it changes the dynamic of community. Okay, beautiful. So, okay, back to the uh, giving us a taste of the process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's see, I got purpose, people, uh, and then, like I said, what, what do we want to prevent mm -hmm. in this context? So I'm talking with people in advance and I'm trying to understand what's gotten in the way before that we want to keep out of the room. And then what do we want to promote instead? So it may be in the past that certain person has always dominated the conversation. Whenever this comes up, so-and-so starts to hold forth. Mm -hmm. um, and then people start to silence themselves. Mm -hmm. So we want to figure out a way that we can structure a conversation so that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what do we want to promote instead? Well, we want to have um, everybody in equal voice. And how do we create an environment where that can happen? Um, and then... Then that leads to the plan, right? Mm -hmm. um, how we're going to work together in a dialogue to, to do that. Uh, and then very importantly, maybe most importantly, is the last P, which is preparation. Mm -hmm. And by that, we mean helping participants prepare themselves for a different kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. now, there's obviously all the stuff that we have to do as facilitators of design, plan, you know, helping people come to ground rules and agreements. But one of the, I think, the signature um, contributions of this approach is uh, an in-depth interview with participants uh, that elicits from them their hopes and concerns, helps them remember their capacities, um, uh, starts them thinking about and rehearsing a, a new kind of conversation. This is, this is beforehand. This is beforehand, mm -hmm. right? So a pre-meeting, in-depth interview that leaves people with a better sense of making choices mm -hmm. about how they're going to be in the presence of an opponent. Mm -hmm. So that when people do come into the room, I often get asked by facilitators that I'm training, well, what do I do if this happens? What do I do if that happens? You know, um, all these particular people, problems that people anticipate. And I tell them, if you do the job of preparation, if you work through the sort of six P's and you really help people prepare themselves for a different kind of an engagement, you will have hardly any problems that will come up in the dialogue mm -hmm. process because they will handle it and the structure and the process will handle it mm -hmm. so that they have a different kind of conversation. Sort of gets people out of their reactive brain into their, right. you know, exactly. their prefrontal cortex, if I'm using the right language. Um, right, right. Um, and if, you, if you're familiar or your listeners are familiar with the work of David Rock, um, we, we uh, do a lot of... So our thinking is very close to his thinking about the importance of beginnings because he talks mm -hmm. about the sort of five social domains that people scan for when they come into a new group environment for mm -hmm. evidence that they should approach or avoid. Mm -hmm. um, and you want to prevent people from going to that avoid response because, as you said, um, when you have that autonomic, automatic um, response to perceived threat, it it happens very quickly within, you know, a fraction of a second, and then it takes about 20 minutes for people to get their bearings again. Right. right. So we try to front end load a lot uh, to enable people to have the best beginning possible. Right. Right. 
Cool. All right. So uh, I always hate like uh, even mentioning time, but t- but time is moving on, and I nice. I definitely want to hear a story uh, of application if you have one. I probably have many, um, and uh, but uh, again, I probably you, you know I don't know. Is there a story that you could tell that you think would give the listeners a sense of how this works? What's mm-hmm. you know what. What worked? What didn't work? Um, sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so I'll try to. I'll if I can do two quickies. I'll do a. Uh, Although a Bob, dialogue. I actually I'm sorry I didn't interrupt, but I realized maybe you could. So you gave us the f- six P's. Yeah. Oh, you wanted an actual one, two, three, yeah. four of a meeting. Yeah. 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 yeah, sure. yeah. I think I that would that. be interesting yeah. to hear that. Great. So um, the way the process starts uh, is as I mentioned, um, with talking with uh, people, particularly uh, usually a planning committee about what some of the needs are and um, what a plan might look like. And as we interview people um, in the preparatory process, we're also trying to learn what kinds of agreements or ground rules could support people in having a different kind of conversation. Uh, And then we sort of play back, play that back to people. And the way a meeting typically starts is we, um, will often try to have some kind of a meal or some kind of a sharing of food as a first encounter. So smart. Uh, even <laughs> of, course, with a, of course, then it's what kind of food is going to work. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, and that can be a real interesting experience uh, if you have people, say, coming from different identity groups to bring food from their, mm-hmm. um, from their identity group or their culture or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned family dinner project. I want to talk about that at some point because it relates to the food piece too. Okay. Uh, so people come and share some food, have conversation that's not related to the issue at hand. Um, we might also do something uh, enabling people to talk about in an organization what's brought them there, sort of similar to what you said, what's an early experience you had that um, motivated you to want to teach uh, English in a university, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then if we can, I like to have people move from the place that they've eaten into a different room for a dialogue. Because I think a lot of what we do has to do with thresholds. People go through thresholds to different kinds of experiences. And the more we can do that physically with metaphor, um, I think the more powerful it is. Mm. So when we can do that, it's great. Uh, and then people come into a room, sit in a circle. We encourage people to sit sort of pro-con, pro-con or you know, differentiate themselves so they're not just, you know, side side by side looking at each other across the, you know, thing. Sorry. Um, uh, so pro con, pro con. So in a circle, you actually yeah. put pro, you put them like next to yeah. each, next to somebody yeah. who's thinking differently than them. That's right. sort of, okay. Yeah. Okay. And that's one of the things that we <clears throat> gain from the that interview process, that iterative early process where we were interviewing people. We heard from partisans sit us next to each other. Don't sit us across from each other. Yeah. I'm um, one of those people who, you know, believes that you should control the hell out of the stuff that you can control and room structure right. being one of them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. <clears throat> so what I, it's what I would call the geography of the room. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're trying to set up the geography of the room to support the kind of conversation that you want to have. Okay. Um, which for me also means no flip charts in the middle, uh, an unbroken circle, because yeah. uh, you want that space to be open between people. Right. And so we'll start off by reviewing the purposes and goals. 
and then move into uh, a review of the agreements that people have already seen and they've already committed to individually with with a facilitator. And where are you actually as the leaders? Are you you're probably in the circle opposite each other? The are there two of you? Uh, well, I like to set it up so that we're together, so okay. that the rest of the circle is together, okay, uh, rather than kind of breaking it in half. Okay, other people have different preferences. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so we're reviewing the goals, we're reviewing the the agreements or ground rules, making sure they're cool with everybody. If anybody has edits or additions, if we left something out, putting that in, um, and then we move into a section we call opening questions. And the idea of opening questions is to open new material, get new information into the room to cultivate curiosity among the listeners. And the sort of standard purposes of an initial conversation, an initial dialogue of three questions are a question about personal experience that's led to your perspective, a question about what's at the heart of the matter for you with regard to whatever the issue is that's on the table, and a question that enables people to speak about their complexity. So Within your overall perspective, most people have some kind of gray areas or areas where they feel pulled in different directions, either because of their own values or because of the relationships that they find themselves in. Um, can you say a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. And as people are doing this, we're asking them to speak with time limits, um, two to three minutes with pauses in between, pauses after a question is asked. So Again, the, the container, comments. you're creating a... Yes. Yeah. It's very structured mm -hmm. um, and uh, no comments mm -hmm. after people are speaking. Uh, but people are taking notes on what people are saying mm -hmm. and preparing themselves to ask questions of one another in the next section. Um, so that section we call questions of genuine interest. So we invite people to say, okay, you've had an opportunity to hear what everybody's had to say. You've had questions come up for yourselves, maybe you have assumptions you want to check out, now's the time to ask people questions that enable them to go more deeply uh, into their perspective and what they have to say. So the idea of that section is, it's questions, we have a whole exercise and training we call questions in service of the asked. Mm. So can you ask a question that will enable your listener to say more? Mm -hmm. Uh, as opposed to question to trap, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then depending on time, if we have more time, we might just have some more general conversation to tease out themes and um, for people to respond more fulsomely uh, and then move into a closing, which uh, is another threshold in my mind. So typically what I ask people to do is to say something about what they have contributed to the way that this conversation has gone because mm -hmm. I want people to leave with a sense of ownership um, and understanding that they were agentic in this. They weren't Ag just agentic, agentic, <laughs> right? They were agents in addition ah, to okay. just being, because a lot of, I think what happens in these polarized discourses that people get into is they feel carried along. Mm -hmm. They feel carried along by the, the process or the other people in the room and, and, go on automatic as opposed to intentional engagement. So what I want people to do is pay attention at the end to say, yes, we had an intentional engagement here and I did this, this, and this to make that happen. I didn't say this, but I did say that uh, and that helped. I liked then, you um, mentioning the, you know, uh, the ask versus, I don't know if your language, uh, helping people understand how to ask versus how to trap. 
Um, yes. And uh, I actually have um, a table that comes that you guys created, which I don't yeah, know. Yeah, the debate to dialogue. Yeah, table. I think it's. I, I'd yep. like to put it on the show notes because I think it's so helpful in terms of just seeing the contrast. People see how much in our public discourse we engage in debate and and uh why it's exhausting <laughs> right, right, right versus yeah. uh so i don't know is it would that be okay to put put in the show notes that that table oh yeah sure again it's, i think it's on the website you can pull it off there okay so cool. so we've had this initial dialogue and at the end we would uh, want to contact people and say is this enough is this what you wanted to do did you achieve what you want to achieve do you want to do more uh, and then working with people and, you know, it could be a single session like that or I've had clients that I've worked with for up to three years. Wow. Wow. Um, and, you know, we, we it will then evolve and certainly become looser as time goes on. Um, but, but keeping the same principles of bringing new information into the room, of speaking to be heard and listening to understand – um, and then engaging with each other in ways that that draw the other out and don't just, you know, try to instruct or persuade or whatever. Is there uh, on the website, is there actually a, a video or anything of this happening? I know these are probably confidential kinds of settings, but maybe you is there something like that? You know, unfortunately, uh, th- there's a 12 session virtual dialogue training that has 12 videos and lessons and things like that. But it's frankly me. Um, well, there are also expert interviews of other people embedded in that, but there's only a couple of small clips of actual dialogue happening. So we really don't, as you say, it's always confidential. Um, and if any of the listeners out there have a lot of money that they'd like to throw our way, we'd love to make uh, some videos, professionally tape a dialogue, uh, situation. Um, but we have not done that yet. So, um, yeah, it would be great if if you could tell a story that shows the application of this, um, so the listeners get some sense of what this looks like in real life, um, and you know what maybe what worked, what didn't work. Uh, any comments about it, um, if you could? Sure. So one example would be a church that was deciding um, whether to become open, welcoming, and affirming to gay and lesbian people. And uh, this church had uh, tried to do this, the leadership had tried to do this without the input of people from the congregation and wound up losing about a third of the congregation um, as a result. And so those efforts were put on hold until a new minister um, came on board. And that minister decided that he would handle this in a different way and spend a year of preparation uh, of people talking with each other and talking with the leaders before they would even consider uh, a vote. And a core component of those conversations was teaching people how to ask questions of one another um, and to talk about how their experiences shaped their perspectives in ways that were respectful uh, and led to deeper understanding. And so that the Uh, Engaging people in dialogue um, across the theological divides of um, perspective on homosexuality, combined with uh, teaching and many opportunities for people to ask questions. In fact, one of the first things that was done 
was to have a forum of people to raise questions that they wanted to have answered over the next year. And we put those questions on big index cards and posted them. Uh, and those became the community of questions of the church. Nice. How many and, people are we talking about in this congregation? Uh, at that time, there were, I think, about 300. Now there's over 600. Wow. So um, at the end of this time of engagement in various ways, um, and to go back to that word you used before of creating the container, the structures where people could ask their questions of each other and of the clergy, um, and the clergy could ask questions of uh, congregants, people felt really heard. And, and if I were to put my finger on anything that's the most important component of this process, it's giving people the opportunity to feel heard as they wish to be heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what the minister did was to, to I think, use our work and our approach um, that created the space where people could behave in a way they were encouraged to speak in a way that would enable them to be heard. Uh, so sometimes, you know, I, I will say to people, I, I come from Buffalo and we, you know, sort of are um, common, if not vulgar, uh, some of us in our uh, language. But I'll say to people, you know, you're not going to get people to listen and understand you if you start out by shoving a stick in their eye. <laughs> um, so what kind of conversational environment can we create that doesn't encourage that? And in that context, um, I worked with a minister to do that. Um, the result in the end was they did have the vote. Um, they voted overwhelmingly to become open, welcoming and affirming. Hmm. Almost all the people came back who had wow. left. Hmm. And even those who disagreed, why do, you outcome, th- why do you think that happened? Why did the people come? Cause they hadn't participated, had they, or had they? The they came back and they came back and came back and came back and participated in the whole in, process. They did. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. And mm-hmm. so, um, people told the minister after this vote was taken, look, I don't agree with the outcome of this, but I'm not going anywhere because mm-hmm. I felt my voice was considered as much as anybody else's voice. Wow, I beautiful. felt heard. Beautiful. And mm-hmm. that congregation now has grown so much that they just, uh, finished an addition they had a capital campaign that raised, I don't know, a couple million bucks. Um, and it's just bursting at the seams. Wow. And I think a lot of it has to do with the environment of inclusion that was created by having different kinds of conversations. And now do they continue to use this kind of container on a regular basis or, or how has it kind of, is it part of the culture? What ha- what's happened? Um, I think not in terms of the the highly structured Mm -hmm. model that we have, Mm -hmm. but the principles of, I'll go back to listening to understand and speaking to be understood, are uh, principles that guide meetings uh, and all kinds of interactions in the church uh, to this day. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it was an amazing success story. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I don't really even know if I want to go to things that didn't work out, <laughs> but, uh, or, or maybe, maybe you could just speak briefly to what you think, are there limitations to this model, things that you think don't yeah. work? Yeah. Just briefly speak to that. I think probably the biggest challenge, uh, is working within an institution with, within a, a component of an institution, um, that has a larger sort of power structure. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and this component can do really great work together. Um, and I think we always want to value that. Kind and, of what, it, it, watching your hands, because I can see you on video. It's uh-huh. almost like you're talking, you work at the middle of the system, but you right. got a, you got a, a, a structure on top of that middle right. that's right. not budging. And right. can you so, change, can you change from the middle, which is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the nature of the work that we do, I think, is to focus on those people who are in the room uh, to change their relationships. And. The challenge is whether that is going to be supported by uh, the, the you know, other levels of power in an by organization. By the hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there, are so, there is plenty of reason to think that it has value in and of itself. And um, even through my best efforts, I've worked with people in institutions and try to be very clear saying this is not going to automatically change the way the president works or the way the provost works or whatever. There are still people who, you know, they really want that to happen and they they then are disappointed when their dialogue doesn't change the policy of the institution. So that's a place. Yeah. That's such a a challenge. I think for whatever, whatever process you're using, if you can get, you know, getting the, getting the hierarchy in the room and sometimes they won't, they won't come in because you always run and run that risk. You do use some kind of process of high democracy and then yeah. the leader says, nope, not doing that. Yeah. And that's why I think <laughs> um, it's so important to be clear about the purpose in the beginning, mm-hmm. to say mm-hmm. this is what we can do and this is what we probably can't do and let's make sure that we're all on the same page about that. Yeah. Um, and so that's a challenge. It's not, it's not something that is always a challenge because there are plenty of times when um, you're brought in by the power structure right. uh, because they want to see this change happen. They want to disseminate it throughout the whole organization. And that's, right. you know. Awesome and exciting. Um, yeah. that's, I'd say the other thing is that um, there are times when people get scared mm-hmm. um, and they conceptually, um, yes, you know, I want to meet with the opponent. Um, but when it really comes right down to actually coming in the room with somebody mm-hmm. who, say, is um, thinks that you, because, say, because you're gay, um, thinks that you're somehow... Uh, less than. Uh, so to come in the room with that person can be a very fear-inducing experience. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, we deal with that in race, gender, other. Uh, so that's the other place where I think um, the importance of having a pre-meeting connection with the facilitator so that somebody feels deeply connected and heard is um, of such value because mm-hmm. it tends to then um, uh diminish that fear response that people have when they know that they have an ally in the room in the facilitator. So for so uh, yeah, for sure. So Bob in the in the uh remaining time we have left, I wonder if you could speak just, you know, you've been in the field for a long time and you've been in a specific part of the field, but yeah. a field that is trying to bring a more peaceful coexistence with each other and any um you know, for the younger listeners, people starting out, any any thoughts or reflections? It doesn't have to be for younger listeners, but just reflections uh, uh, that you'd like to share before we close? Yeah, I think that a lot of the insights of alternative dispute resolution and dialogue work, um, people often think of it as this discrete thing that professionals do. 
And I've been encouraging people, especially young people that are going to leadership positions, as to think about it as um, a quality of engagement um, that you bring with you as a leader um, or even as a worker so that what people can learn from the work that we do is how to engage difference and then how to construct environments in their departments, in their organizations where people can engage each other in their difference in constructive ways. That to me is the real gift of the work that we do to the larger world, whether it's our families, our houses of worship, or our you know, work environments. Everybody can take some of this and apply it without having to be a professional trying to make a buck, which is really tough in this uh, profession. Um, so, so that's what I would say. I think that's the, that's the big uh, contribution. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's so uh, similar to Robbie Roberts was on the last, at the last interview and said something so similar about her desire for leaders and leadership in terms of being able to really hold the whole and use these kinds of skills um, and you know, you have to say something about the family, uh, yes, the, the family, family dinner, dinner project. project. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I guess it's about seven years ago now, Shelly London, who was a corporate executive retired, went to a program at Harvard where, um, executives could uh, sort of take on a nonprofit task, uh, or a task to improve society. And, um, she really wanted to, uh, do sort of enhance people's capacity to make ethical decisions um, and to build character. And she did that in a number of different ways, one of which was uh, bringing people back to the dinner table and started to do some brainstorming with me and Laura Chasen and a couple of other people. And we created this thing that we called the Family Dinner Project um, and experimented with bringing people together to learn from them about what the challenges were to having people as a family eat dinner together, what the opportunities were, and how could we make it more possible for people to do this in this kind of crazy world that we live in. <laughs> um, so we built this project and started bringing families together in large groups for community dinners to talk wow. about their challenges, to talk about their triumphs, wow. uh, to give wisdom to each other. Wow. Uh, and then um, Anne Fischel, one of the founders, wrote a, a wonderful book that, fortunately, the title of which I can't remember right now. Um, but uh, that book gathers together the research on the importance of family dinner for the growth of children and families um, and informs the work that the Family Dinner Project continues to do. I got involved because I believe that we first learn how to engage difference in our families. And at the dinner table, if we're lucky. And I was lucky because, as I said before, my single dad always made sure that we had dinner around the dinner table. I heard something long ago that I so wonder if it's true, that, that when Yale University did a study about who got into Yale, what was the common denominator, the thing that they discovered was that uh, there was nothing that they could identify except the fact that uh, kids came from families that ate dinner together. Really? Well, that's something. interesting. And I don't know if it's true, but oh, I had definitely to, heard that. Yeah. To check with Anne and see. <laughs> she knows all the research on that. But it does definitely correlate with um, um, increased ability to read, um, academic performance, uh, decreased drug use, all that kind of good stuff, you know, that you want to have your kids have um, is more common in, in families that have dinner together. And now for the last uh, two or three years, Project Zero 
has taken over Family Dinner Project, mm. um, and they're running it out of uh, out of there in the, the sort of Harvard Grad School of Education, uh, and uh, and it's really helping families around the world to uh, have dinner together and uh, to be able to cook recipes that are um, friendly and but sort of budget friendly, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then to help them have different kinds of conversations at the dinner table. And, and I can't help but mention it's really not related, but I was just at the Brooklyn Museum seeing Judy Chicago's uh, the dinner uh-huh. uh, the dinner, dinner project table. the dinner table, which yeah. is such an amazing yeah. visual of cross generation. This is about women, but cross generational dinner conversations yeah. or bringing together people for lots of different perspectives yeah. Yeah. around food. And so, Bob, I know you have a hard stop and we have to go. How would people find you uh, if they if they wanted to find you? And so, what's the best um, way to reach you? So I'll, there are a couple of things. We mentioned the Family Dinner Project, so we should do a shout out about their website. It's thefamilydinnerproject.org. Okay. Um, the Public Conversations Project slash uh, Essential Partners, uh, the website there is whatisessential.org. Okay. Um, and my organization, uh, which my website is not running yet, will be next week, is um, Bob Stain's um Bob Stains and Associates, conflicttransformation.com. So we'll put that up on the show notes and, or actually put it in the contact information so everybody knows how to reach you. And sure. uh, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. It's really been a, one of the things I love about this podcast is getting to know people and, and uh, really a pleasure getting to know you and hope to have continued conversations, maybe around right. dinner. Yeah, same here. <laughs> Good. Okay, Bob. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peacebuilding Podcast. Check out thepeacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. Please email your comments, suggestions, and ideas to susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. And join me next time for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level. 